Dr. James Smith is with us today. He currently practices at the Florida Heart and Vascular Association in the field of complex coronary and peripheral intervention, clinical cardiology, and lipid management. I'm sure you know what all that means. <laughs> Dr. Smith completed his pre-medical education in two years, finishing at Florida International University. He was in the eighth graduating class of the University of South Florida College of Medicine, where he was president of his class. He completed his residency in internal medicine at Wake Forest University Medical Center in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and remained there for fellowship in cardiology and interventional cardiology. Under the tutelage of Dr. Michael Kutcher, he performed hundreds of angioplasty procedures before establishing his practice in Tampa. He went through all of that to be sure that he practiced well enough to do it on me. <laughs> Dr. Smith is a lifetime board certified in internal medicine and cardiovascular medicine. In 2004, he extended his board certification with added qualifications in interventional cardiology. He is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology, the Society for Cardiac Angiography and Intervention, and the American College of Chess Physicians. He is married and he has two, oh, I'm sorry, three grown children as well. Dr. Smith is also a committed Christian. He is a teaching pastor at one of the largest Baptist churches in Tampa, Idlewild Baptist Churches, where we attend when we go over there. And we're, Al and his family is attending now as well, so we're thankful for that. He's also involved in quite a bit of mission outreach. He goes to different places um, using the skills God has given him to help in the missions field. So it's a real joy to have him here today, because as I said, uh, he's the one who's brought me back. Now, some of you might not like him because of that, but I'm sorry uh, he's here. So please, let's welcome Dr. James Smith. Thank you for all of those kind words. It is indeed a great joy to be here, our first time in the Bahamas. God has been very good to me. He's given me a wonderful wife, Kathleen, who's down here in, in the fourth row. Please greet her if you would. <laughs> 33 years in just a few weeks. Uh, in addition to uh, opening this career in medicine, uh, the Lord opened the doors for me to attend Dallas Seminary the same school that Dr. Lee attended, in the same department. We sat under many of the same professors and uh, had some of the same headaches and uh, late hours and um, uh, problems to solve as a result of that. Uh, I found out on a Friday night that my partner had admitted him and um, things had come to a head and required an intervention. And um, he has been a very memorable patient. We had a an equipment failure in the midst of his uh, extreme duress with this, and we were able to get through it. I will never forget those four minutes and 39 seconds of doing CPR without the backup of all of our electronics. Obviously, the electronics ultimately uh, were, were restored, and we were able to move forward with all, all of that, and as a result, here we are blessing God together. It is a great joy for me. One of the, my most favorite things to do is to be in the scriptures with the people of God. It's what we do best. If you look at the face of an athlete or a musician or a singer or any other kind of a performer or worker who is at his or her very best, 
There is a sense of joy that is recognizable but untouchable in that person. God, who is the sovereign over this universe, he is sovereign not only over our solar system and the earth and our lives and our weather, but if you think of it, there is not one rogue atom, not even an atomic particle, over which God is not completely sovereign. And yet in this vast expanse of creation, he's made it such that there is one species that can, of its own free will, at its very best, worship God. What we're doing here today on Christianity's most somber day, Good Friday, is worshiping the Lord. It's what we are best at. And I call you to worship this morning through the power of the scriptures to place our focus on what happened on a very day in history. An absolute time. We sang the song, Behold the Lamb. You know, there was a moment of time when John the Baptist, having been educated by the Spirit of God about what was going to happen, there came that moment when, in fact, the Son of God walked before him, and he recognized the Spirit descending upon him as a dove, and the words came out of his mouth, Behold the Lamb. We do our best as a species created by God when we worship him. As we recognize, behold the Lamb. What I wanted to do today is to walk through the scriptures with you and notice some things there that are historical, medical, theological, and ultimately personal. This day is a magnificent event in history. It's unfair, it's bloody, it's violent, it's politically terribly incorrect, but it is as real as anything that we know. You know, we have more data, more evidence that Jesus walked this earth than that Shakespeare walked this earth. We have so much documentation of his life, so many testaments of the people who walked with him, the early church fathers. In fact, the New Testament, so many uh, documents are available to us today. We have some 30,000 copies of the New Testament. When the church fathers wrote and quoted the Bible in the first and second century, they quoted the Bible so much that you could take just their quotations and recreate, reconstruct the Bible, to the New Testament, 250 times from how many times they cited it. This is reality. This is our history. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. As you know, there are four Gospels, four different viewpoints of these specific events. There's no way in the world that all of the events of Jesus' life could be recorded. But we have these few in fact, about a quarter of the Gospels or more relate to these seven days in the life of Jesus Christ, a very primal event. And we're focusing on the most difficult of them all. In Luke chapter 23, we'll begin with verse 26. This is the history as recorded by Luke, a very precise physician. I don't know what his patients were like. They probably were not as godly and wonderful and compliant as Dr. Lee. But we, but we know of, of his uh, profession at least. Verse 26 begins this way. When they led him, and that him is Jesus, away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed him on the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. 
Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Cryptic words describing the judgment that would come on the nation of Israel for having rejected the Messiah, foretold in the prophets, preaching the word of God in the land of God to the people of God. And yet, as John records, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Verse 32, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, Luke alone does not cite the Hebrew word Golgotha, meaning simply skull. He just calls it the place called the skull. There they crucified him. And all of the gospel writers write this. They crucified him without an awful lot of detail. And as we look back on this, we know that crucifixion was a very common process. It happened to many thousands of people. Many of the rulers of the day would brag on the numbers that they crucified. Thousands in in one day even. Many times the common roads between Rome and Jerusalem and and other areas were lined with crucified criminals. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? A great question in this moment. All of them bloody, tortured, knowing that their death was not only absolute, but imminent. Save yourself and us. A little self-interest there. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. I heard one preacher portray this, and of course with the hands fixed against the wood of the cross. He said that perhaps he stuck his tongue out or lifted his head over towards Jesus in order to indicate who he was speaking of. This man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. We don't have the detail about the centurion, someone who undoubtedly had seen countless prisoners put to death. But as he observed this, we only know of his conclusion that this one, in perhaps the way that he died, or in what he said before he died, was clearly innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they had observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. Our goal today is to see these things. 
and to do what we as a species can do best, and that is to worship him, to worship him for having done this. There are so many things in life that, that are the one-two step of reality. We know that labor and delivery, we know that uh, practice and the game are connected to one another. That when we prepare for something, the preparation is part of the journey, and there is great joy in the journey. We're emphasizing today the somber attitude of Good Friday, knowing that right around the corner, Sunday is on the way. I heard one preacher speak one time, and he said it bothered him that Jesus was laid in a borrowed tomb. He thought the king of the universe could certainly pay his own way if necessary. And as he pondered it for a while, he realized he wasn't going to be using it for very long. Well, I wanted to look as well at some of the medical aspects of the crucifixion. We know that all the gospel writers give us details of this, and we get just a few clues. Physicians over the years have weighed in and, and uh, given their opinions, and uh, there are good opinions and bad opinions. You probably heard the story of the fellow that went to the doctor and said, Doctor, I'm having this pain. And he says, Oh, it's, it's your heart. And he says, Oh, I want a second opinion. He says, Okay, it's your gallbladder. Um, sometimes medicine behaves that way. Uh, opinions are good. Someone has said that every, everybody has opinions, and they're like armpits. Uh, everybody has a couple of them, and they may not smell the best always. But uh, that's the way opinions can sometimes be. We need to, if we are to understand this and to delve in just a bit with a forensic approach to see the magnitude of what went on on the cross, to get a sense of what it felt like, where the blood was, and what really took the life of our Lord. If you'd move forward to this, move to the medical. The, the first thing that we come to uh, in the Gospels is, is where it says that Jesus' sweat drops in the Garden of Gethsemane like blood. Many physicians have, have read this and perhaps read it too fast and have made a defense saying that, well, it's possible that you can actually sweat blood. But notice the scriptures, and this is the only rendition of it, is that he sweat like drops of blood. So it doesn't have to be that he sweated blood at that point. No, he was in good health. We understand this much. Jesus was, the, the common phrase is that he was a carpenter. Well, when you go to Israel, and notice I said when and not if, you have to go. It's just so magnificent to walk there where he walked. Some of the same dirt, some of the same sand. There are structures there. Abraham walked through the gates of Laish, and they have found Laish. You can walk through that same area. Well, Jesus was there, and as you um, travel there, you'll notice not a lot of wood, not a lot of wooden structures, not a lot of frame homes out there. Most of what you have is rock. When Dr. Pentecost was teaching one of my classes, he rehearsed the legend of the rocks in Israel, that the Jewish people say that when the angels had a big uh, bag of rocks and they were distributing them throughout the earth, that the, the bag tore and fell right over Israel. Well, Jesus was probably more a construction worker than a carpenter. We think of him with a saw and hammers and, and nails and things like that. didn't really exist that way. What we should see is him and another person lifting a huge rock and putting it up somewhere and putting in a, a little uh, batter in between there to keep the, the rocks out. Amos chapter 5 talks about the fellow under the judgment of God. He comes in and he puts his coat on a peg by the door, which is just a piece of wood stuck in between the rocks. And most of the garments would go there, just like our coat racks would be today. It says he puts his hand up against the wall, and an adder is in between the rocks and strikes his hand uh, in judgment. 
That's just the, the nature of what it was like. So Jesus was a blue-collar worker, so to speak. Probably incredibly strong to be able to lift those rocks and work in that venue. We know that when he spoke to the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, with thousands of people having just been fed, he had enough of a voice to project to those people. Now, he was on some water. Water helps. But he's not at all the effeminate, milk-toast, weak, lily-livered, uh, featured character that we see so much on television. It was an imposing character. As Isaiah tells us, he was probably not much to look at at the time of the crucifixion. Otherwise, we just don't know. We just don't have a rendition of it. A few years ago, there was a, a shroud found, and there was some initial fear that this shroud might actually have an imprint of his face, and it has been largely discredited, still some, some discussion over that. But the face of Jesus would not have been something that you would remember as something strikingly beautiful. But you would look at him and say, that guy looks healthy. That fellow is fine. So a little blood even, if he did have blood in his sweat, would have made no difference. But the, the trials that happened through the night and the extreme duress that he suffered did contribute to what ultimately took his life. If we're looking forward here uh, to the next slide, please. Um, when he's on the cross, we just read that he uh, cried out in a loud voice. Uh, John tells us that he... Uh, cried out, uh, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The centurion sees this loud voice. One of the theories, and you've probably heard this theory, is that Jesus was asphyxiated or suffocated from hanging on the cross. Now we'll talk in a moment about where the nails went, but uh, on the cross was a very painful process just to be placed there. Uh, not to offend you, but most of the portrayals of Jesus have him with a loincloth. No such thing. The intention of the cross was to embarrass, to shut down the humanity of this person, to demonstrate the power of Rome over an individual, as if to portray, this is what happens if you don't go Rome's way. We take everything from you, all of your possessions, even your clothing, your family, your health, your humanity, all of your dignity, and ultimately, your life. It was the most brutal form of torture possible. The Persians actually developed it, and one of the things that seemed to be favorable to the cruel peoples that practiced crucifixion was that the victim literally killed himself. It was a form of self-expiation, so that by wiggling or asking for help, if, if the victim survived even a moment longer by making himself breathe better or be more comfortable or taking some sustenance, it only prolonged the agony of being on the cross and only prolonged the absolute inevitability that death was coming, that Rome would win. Now, I know it's Friday and Sunday is coming, but when Jesus raised from the dead, the question then would be, what threat does Rome have on someone who can raise from the dead? And the answer is, you know, not one. How are they going to threaten him again? The, the threat of the cross? The threat of death? No big deal to one who can raise himself from the dead. Well, as we look at the medical side of this, asphyxia was considered by a physician named Barbe, a wonderful guy, a French physician. In fact, he went so far as to, uh, to look at the shroud of Turin, and he saw two little blood um, trails on the hands and thought that that would mean that the victim would be in one of two positions, sagging down, not breathing, and pushed up in order to get a, a breath. Now, he would be pushing against the nails in his feet. Sometimes they put a little seat on the cross. 
But, you know, with thousands of people being crucified, the, the victim's comfort was not the issue at all. The seat, in fact, was used for those that they wanted to have on there longer. Probably not the case with Jesus. He was only on a few hours. And when he did die, the way that he died was not by being short of breath or being incapable of getting his breath. In fact, his last words are with a loud voice. So from the medical information available, asphyxia just does not seem to be the case. Another physician named Zugibi, a forensic pathologist um, out of New York, uh, did some studies and actually got some people to hang suspended, not with nails, but with ropes and other uh, devices, from some crosses. And he had them there for sometimes over an hour. And many of these folks uh, would say, well, I felt a little anxiety up there. But no one had any difficulty in breathing, and no one had any oxygen exchange problems. So as a theory, asphyxia, although it's very commonly preached and uh, is a wicked way to feel, may not have been the primary thing that happened with Jesus. Zugabi, with his uh, forensic experiments, has really shown this for us. Um, go to the next one, if you would, please. The sight of the nails. You know, in, in the Gospels, it doesn't mention that they nailed his hands. I, I looked for this. Uh, in fact, I was originally going to do my doctoral dissertation at Dallas Seminary on this particular subject, and I've now moved to something else. But I looked through to see if there was any indication that there were even nails. Because, as you know, sometimes people are uh, lashed there with ropes. But in his case, although there, there's no specific reference to it in the Gospels, afterwards, we know from the interaction with Thomas. Thomas says, I want to put my hand in his side, and we'll come to that word in just a moment, and I want to put my fingers in the holes where the nails were. So the description of the crucifixion doesn't have the word nails, but Thomas does. Jesus says, you know, and this is uh, in, in the Gospel of John, comes and invites Thomas to place his hand into his side or into his chest and to put his fingers into the nail prints. Thomas doesn't need to at that point. He was saying up until then, I am not believing until I see those things. He had laid out his qualifications, but they were not necessary ultimately. So the sight of the nails is, is clearly that um, uh, in there that nailing was certainly more painful and more traumatic, would have contributed to the blood loss. Some folks have, have postulated that maybe that it was in the wrist. Uh, the wrist would certainly fit. We, we know from Acts that when Peter had chains, they were described as being on his hands. Well, if you put chains on somebody's hands, they would just fall off. You would have to put them around the wrist in order to capture that person and keep them from, from being released. So the wrist could be part of the hands. We don't need to be hard and fast with this. But when Jesus describes it, he uses the Greek word for hand. So the, the semantic, uh, the word usage could include the wrist, but there's no reason not to believe that it went into the hand. Those people who did the nailing would have known, and there may have been some variation. We have no manual of this. We don't have anything that says, well, we have a record of it, we have a video of it, or anybody wrote down that says, when you're doing the crucifixion, you always have to go in this spot or that spot or the other. We do have. An archaeological find in Jerusalem, they uh, were digging up an area to build some new homes in there, and they found the remains of a crucified young man. Not Jesus, but a, a young man whose heel had been pierced through. And so we have the actual nail bent at one end, we have the olive wood that the uh, cross was made of, and we have some of the remains of his bones, from which they can, at least to a reasonable degree, 
uh, determine the size of this person just from the bones that were there. Forensic pathologists, physicians that do nothing but autopsies, have done this. And they can see that it was a single nail that went through uh, each of the feet, probably the same type of a process with the hands. Now, the nailing alone would have been painful. And whether or not it affected the nerve, we don't know. There are nerves in that area. But even if they didn't get to the nerve, the amount of pain with that would have been terrible. So now on to the side. Um, yeah, the side of the spear, most commonly from the King James, and I've seen preachers do this a number of times. They say the spear was thrust into his side. And we think of it out here. In fact, I've got some pictures uh, of uh, some of the popular art, and it always shows the spear going in on the right side. Well, the Greek word for, for this is plura, from where we get the word plural. Not plural as in distinction to singular, but a plural effusion, for instance, a patient with congestive heart failure. Many times we'll have fluid in the chest cavity, and that's called a plural effusion, fluid in the chest. And so when this spear was thrust in there, as John renders this for us, it went into the plur, or the plura. The plura um, does describe the lungs and describes the chest, the word does tend, tend to reflect something like wings that hang off to either side in, in twin organs. And in this case here, we know that the, the uh, man who thrust the spear in there, popularly called Longinus, um, just, just has been given this, this traditional name. Uh, sometimes the art that portrays this has a spear that's 20 feet long or has him up on a horse so that he can get there. As we've thought of this over the, the years, in fact, some of our songs say on a hill called Mount Calvary. Well, it didn't have to be a hill. It doesn't have to be high up. Some people thought that the cross was 20 feet above the ground and that the spear was actually hurled up to get to his chest. Well, again, with the conservation of effort, not caring how much you know the, the victim received from this, they wanted just enough cross to do the job. So they would have had the most makeshift wood available. And they would have probably just uh, raised them just above the ground, somewhere on the order of a foot or maybe 18 inches off the ground. People could spit on them. People could come up and, and uh, jab them and poke them and um, tickle them, whatever they wanted to do to these people, speak to them back and forth. It was so that they would be abused on the cross. So the spear, as John says, results in the issue of blood and water. And there have been some people who have tried to figure that out as well medically. They say, well, what's this process going on here? Some people have realized that the pericardium, the sac that the heart sits in, when it has fluid in it, sometimes that fluid doesn't clot. And so some bright physicians have said, oh, that must be the case, that Jesus had a broken heart or heart failure. And when the tip of the spear went in there, the effusion and the blood came out with all that from a broken heart. Not necessary. We certainly know that he didn't have any heart disease. In fact, for Jesus to die at all, he had to render his will useless. If you remember, the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage went up and grabbed his garment and was healed without Jesus even realizing it until afterwards. He didn't turn around and say, you're healed. He walked by and she realized that he had healing power and just by touching his garment was healed. That was the kind of power that was in him. He had to suspend that in order to go through the process of the trauma that took his life. So ultimately, when the spear was pressed into the chest, a uh, centurion or a soldier on crucifixion duty, knowing that the Passover was coming, 
and that the Jews want all the people, did want all the people off of the crosses for the sake of the nicety of the feast. And this, of course, is the most bizarre of all things. Remember when they took Jesus in for his trial, they didn't want to step into Herod's palace because it would make them unclean for the feast. And here they were making themselves unclean by destroying the Passover for the rest of the world, not recognizing that he was Christ, our Passover, that he was, the one they were giving over to Pilate, was in fact the type, the picture that the Passover presaged all of those years, thousands of years ahead of time, was about this one man, and they didn't want to be made ceremonially unclean for their ceremony. Well, let's move forward with this just a little bit. The ruptured heart and congestive heart failure, neither of those had to be the case. The, the easy answer was somewhere in there. He did not stop breathing because he had no control of it. But simply, as, as John says, he breathed his last and gave up his spirit. As he says with this loud voice, into thy hands I commit my spirit, he yields up his life. I'm contending that the centurion saw that and said, no one has ever died that way before. Now, granted, he'd lost a lot of blood between the scourging, uh, the beatings, the, the crown of thorns, the, the sweating, and maybe even sweating of blood in Gethsemane, the, the nails in his hands. All those things contributed to an extreme state. Had he wanted to, he could have made 15 pints of blood without an effort. He could have called a 1,000, 10,000, 10 million angels to come and give him transfusions, anything he wanted to. He spoke the universe into existence with a word and was not tired afterwards. So a little trauma, a little blood loss, a little low volume, no problem. But he simply chose to go through that. So we know that he sweat, not drops of blood. He was nailed in the hands, and that when he gave up the spirit, that afterwards they came to be sure that he was gone. They wanted to break the legs. And this is part of the reason why Barbet felt that asphyxia was a problem, was, was the actual cause of death. Because they would break the legs of the victims. Well, several things happened when they broke the legs. It made it harder to breathe. Some of those people did die from asphyxia, not those with the unbroken legs. Also, when you break the legs, there's more bleeding, there's more pain, there's more potential for a blood clot to form, that if there is blood available, that the blood clot can, in the setting of trauma, break loose and travel to the lung where it can create the, the victim's demise. More importantly than what happened physically to Jesus... We may have just the scantiest of details, but we know this, that he died on the cross. That he got there with a tremendous, healthy, capable, sustained life. Life from God the Father himself. A perfect set of DNA chromosomes, genes. There was in him no blemish, no problem. He had no medical diseases. His spine was not weakened. His arm was not short. His eye was not dimmed. He was in perfect shape. And in a matter of hours, that life was entirely gone. Theologically, he did that for a reason. And we know it's simply this. The wages of sin, what happened in the garden when sin entered, was that God's universe could not tolerate sin. God is a holy God, does not allow for that. And so there has to be something that covers, that pays for sin in order to restore the relationship of righteousness, of holiness. It's really the wrath of God that's being assuaged. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53 is one of our greatest passages in the Old Testament that not only prefigures the cross, but gives us a lot of our theology. 
Isaiah 53, in fact, we're going to start three verses ahead of that in 52, 13. In Isaiah, we see a series of kings. The terrible king Ahaz comes up and is offered a sign by God. And he says, I don't even want a sign. I'm set. I was born in the house of David. I don't need your help. God gives him the sign of the virgin birth, prefiguring also Jesus. In the second portion of the, the, well, the middle of Isaiah, we see King Hezekiah, a great king, a marvelous human king, but who has a little bit of a problem. He shows Nebuchadnezzar um, all of the great uh, treasures that he's got there in, in the uh, temple and the treasury. Ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and takes those things. He liked them too much. And as we get through the first section of Isaiah, we have this yearning, like all through the Old Testament, when Moses is on the scene and he does great things and then fails when he strikes the rock, we, we yearn, oh, for a, a leader that would not fail like Moses did, that would carry us all the way into the promised land. For the judges, when they, they came about and they had the opportunity to route the Canaanites from the land, but they failed more and more and they did what was right in their own eyes. As the kings came to the fore, uh, Saul with great promise and then falls apart. And then David, the great one, and then has his sins. And then Solomon, it's so haunting. First Kings 3, Solomon has this great prayer, uh, give me wisdom to govern your people. First Kings 11, a, a mere uh, few chapters later, his women took his heart away from the Lord. And we're left with a sense of yearning, oh God, give us a king that would rule us appropriately. Give us a judge that would carry us into righteousness. Give us a lawgiver that won't fail by striking the rock. As we come to the New Testament, we have exactly that. Well, same thing in Isaiah. Ahaz fails. Hezekiah, although he's a great king, fails. And we're left yearning. The last section of Isaiah, 40 through 66, describes this suffering servant, the king who prospers. And at the end of the book, he comes in glorious victory. In fact, his garments are blood-stained because he's routed his enemies. He's blood-stained twice, one for his people, one in order to rule his people. This is the first of those in Isaiah 52:13. Behold, my servant will prosper. This servant is the suffering servant that does the work of, of the Lord. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who even has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this suffering servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through. And notice the words. Zechariah also talks of the one whom they have pierced. They mourn when they see him at his second coming. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening or the discipline, the punishment for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, literally the same scourging described of Jesus, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. 
He was not guilty. He was innocent as the centurion, as Pilate, as Herod, as all the people around him knew. One has to imagine what his mother must have felt, knowing him as she did. Her own children didn't believe until after the resurrection. Joseph is gone as of John chapter 6 is the last mention of him. So here's Mary knowing who he is. No one else having accepted him. The twelve, but they're gone. They've already betrayed him. Peter closest to him, uh, perhaps, along with John, already betrayed him. And to, to be able to see this and to think, this is what they're doing to my flesh, to my son. It's the same feeling that Eve must have had when she looked at Cain and Abel. And in one day, Eve had two boys that started out the day relatively innocent. And at the end of the day, one was dead and one was a murderer. A bad day. Bad day for Mary as well to see her son brutally treated this way. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which has generated a lot of controversy, there's a a beautiful portrayal of this. Something that is seen in many artistic portrayals of this called La Pieta. The devotion, the the faith, and this face of Mary as she sees Jesus on the cross has been portrayed so well. Um, Picasso, all all of the greats have have done this. Uh, Mel Gibson gave us a fabulous pieta. In fact, the framing of, of the picture in the movie comes in close to show her face. And here she is there just as angry as any mother would be to know that her child was in pain. Someone that she loved was undergoing this And to be completely innocent. He did nothing but speak the word of God, love people, heal people, and promise a kingdom of love and light. And they took him and treated him this way. And you can see the white knuckles. She's got gravel in her hands and the anger in there. If she had a button that she could have pressed and nuked Rome, she would have done it there. And the realization comes on her face, this actress who portrayed it so well. And he says, it's finished. And he slumps on the cross, and she's still loaded with anger. And then her hands release the gravel. And it comes over her face, and she realizes, this is why he was born. This was what he wanted to do. This was his goal all along. This was his shining moment, his glorious victory. He had to do this. And she must have realized at that moment, My atonement has been fulfilled. The atonement for the sins of the whole world, for every sin that ever was, has happened right now. Jesus on the cross, brutally treated, emotionally in despair, asked the hardest question of all time. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the people don't even get it. Someone thought, oh, he's calling for Elijah. What's he doing? And we even look at that and say, what happened? Why is Jesus questioning anything? Did he not know? The gospel writers portray this right there towards the end, after which he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He addresses God in his office. and says, My God, why have you forsaken me? And it's for this. Jesus was tempted by the chief of tempters, was given the greatest temptation that the devil could ever offer anyone. He was hoping that in some way, some chance, Jesus would say, Well, maybe. I might take some of that. So he knew sin in this regard, that he had come as close to sin to be able to touch it and taste it and feel it and understand what was right there on the other side of his will. Perhaps uh, the, the finest, thinnest membrane was all that separated him from sin, but he was yet without sin. 
On the cross, the opposite. It's as if he had just transgressed that membrane and was the one who had committed every sin against the Father, violating not only the knowledge of the Father, the will of the Father, but the heart of the Father. When somebody sins against you, they don't do what you tell them to do. They think they know better, and they break that relationship. This was the greatest break that could ever be in the most intimate and loving relationship in the universe, and yet was busted, broken, gushing out with blood. And he felt the shame of it, just as if he had been the one who committed it. And the turning of the back of the Father to place his wrath upon him, when the iniquity of us all is placed upon him, he would have felt there, naked, cold, bleeding, dying, alone, and guilty, just as if he had done it. For him, the greatest relief was to say, it is finished. Theologically, this means something to us. Uh, Go to the next one, please. Next slide, please. Theologically, we know that our sin was placed on him. There are three great imputations in Scripture. It's a big theological word. It just means the transferring of one thing to another. When we were born, Adam's sin was transferred to us. We inherited it. It was imputed to us. When we trust in Christ as our Savior, our sin is imputed and transferred onto him, positionally where it's already been taken care of. Ultimately, his righteousness is then imputed back to us so that we don't just live a cleaned up life today. What we live is the life of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul says in Galatians. That's our reality. It's been imputed to us in just this way. Um, just a few things more here. He is our Passover, as 1 Corinthians 5 says. This picture from way back when, the same one-two step, there it was the Passover followed by the Exodus. In activities, human activities, there's the practice and then there's the game. In life, there's labor and delivery. There's school and then practice to follow. In the Old Testament, the exodus only could happen after the Passover had taken place to expunge the sins of the people, to show the power of God. Jesus is our Passover. He has become that lamb that for us places the blood on the the, uh, lentil of the doorpost, the mantle of the doorpost, so that the angel of death passes over us. The wages of sin is there. It still belongs with sin. Each of us being sinners through the, the guilt of Adam need this for the angel of death to pass us over. Our Passover is in fact Christ. Next slide, please. It also gives us the um, freedom from the power of sin, as 1 John 7 says, is that the blood of Christ continually cleanses us. So even though his blood was shed 2,000 years ago, the blood is still effective. It still is the one thing that will overcome sin. We overcome by appropriating that blood, by simply saying, my blood's not good enough. Mine is tainted. Mine is, is a, a, a blood that came from Adam. It's only his blood that I appropriate can cover any sin. His blood is good enough to cover any imaginable sin in my life. Go forward, if you would, one more, please. Well, this is the way it goes for us. He is not just one who died in history, but he died for you. He understood that you had that sin nature at birth, that I had that sin nature at birth. So he died for you, and he offers you eternal life. We were all opposed to God. Ephesians tells us that we were the enemies of God. 
and that as a result of being drawn to him, and he said in, in uh, John 12 that if he would be raised up, if he would be lifted up, that he would draw all men to himself. The cross draws us to itself. The garish, vicious, violent, bloody mess of it, on the one hand, makes us want to turn our heads away, and yet, like all the rubberneckers on the road that have to see what happened at the accident, we want to peer up there and say, what's going on? What happened to him? He died of massive trauma brought politically, religiously, and physically upon him. He submitted his will to allow himself to be killed in that fashion for one reason, for you, for you, so that you could know the joy of not only having salvation, but knowing this one. We don't have to go on the cross because he did. We are absolved of all of it because he did. You know this as a parent or a grandparent, that you would give an arm for your child. You would do anything for your child. This, this one who's in the car accident today, you, you can feel the anguish of the parents thinking, oh, what's going to happen? What's next? I hope nothing's broken. I hope he makes it through this with no long-term issues. We feel that deep inside. That's what the Lord feels for you. If you don't know him, this is your Good Friday. You are the reason why he went through all this. Understanding what was on the cross, he despised the, cro- the, the cross, he endured the, the shame, despising it for the joy set before him. That's the joy that we all understand. That's the joy that we understand when we worship him. When we recognize that medically and theologically and historically this really happened, that it happened for me. So that we have this unbridled access to him. We have a relationship with him just like Mary's. We, we think of the cross and it, and it scares us a bit. But once we realize that that was for me and what that buys for me, we are never the same. So Good Friday is a day that for Christians is a day of hushed tones, a day of sadness, a day of somber thoughts, to consider what it really meant for the God-man to give up his life in this fashion in order to assuage the wrath of the Father. But for every one of us, for every Good Friday, there's a Sunday coming. Thank you for your attention.